My guest today is Dan Martel. So Dan is an angel investor. He's the founder of the SaaS Academy, where he trains and coaches high-performing SaaS founders. Before that, Dan founded several technology companies, three of which, Spheric Technologies, Flowtown, and Clarity, were acquired. He raised millions of dollars of funding. He was an advisor to billion-dollar companies like Intercom, Hootsuite, and Udemy, and he's a fellow Canadian. So Dan, welcome to the podcast. Etienne, thanks for having me, man. I, um, I'm super pumped to be here. And I appreciate the opportunity. That's great. Uh, so maybe start with a big question. So uh, if an entrepreneur were to start a new business tomorrow, how would you recommend they go about doing that? And what would be the starting point? Dude, that big question freaked me out. I thought it was going to be like, <laughs> you know, what's the meaning of life? I was worried I wasn't ready for it. <laughs> um, yeah. So, I mean, here's, here's the way I think about it is um, the biggest risk of any business or entrepreneurial endeavor is building something for a customer that doesn't want it. And so every company I've ever started, I've always gone to the consumer, to the customer, to the individual first, and then worked backwards from that. The way I do it uh, is pre-selling. And people are like, oh, you can't pre-sell this, you can't pre-sell that. The beauty of today is I've got, I've got crowdfunding to just you know point to and say, hey, um, you know, Crowdfunding's probably about a three or four billion dollar a year market, maybe even bigger at this point. And every one of those projects essentially are pre-orders, pre-sales to the product before for most of them ever build it, right? They might have a design, they might have a prototype, et cetera. So the first thing that I have always done in every company is pre-sell it. So maybe some examples will help. Um, when I started my company Maritime Vacation, my first customer was my dad. He owned a cottage. Uh, I thought, you know, he kept getting phone calls from people because he was, he was, he was, uh, listing the, um, the vacancy on, uh, in newspapers. It's hilarious. Now that I think of it, he ran <laughs> classifieds and he kept answering the same questions, you know, yes, it's available these dates. No, it's not. No, we don't allow pets. It's in this location. It was built three, 30 years ago. Like all literally, I mean, this is 97, 98. So um, I just asked him if he'd be willing to pay and I charged him a lot more than everybody else because I needed the money for the servers. Um, but he paid, I think it was, I charged him 500 bucks or 600 bucks because it was like a hundred dollars a month for these, these, uh, servers that so built in this programming language called cold fusion. But I pre-sold it to my dad. And then I went as far as pre-selling it to a bunch of bed and breakfasts. So the way I did that is I found a list in, um, in every province, there's a tourism guide. And I, I looked at, I found out that they have all their addresses in the tourism guide and I created a mail merge in Word, an access database for the data that I got my little brother Mo to fill in, a Word doc form letter that said, hey, there's this thing called the internet, do you wanna put your bed and breakfast on, you know, and it costs like 30 bucks, send me some photos and some cash. And dude, people did it. They sent me money in the mail and I was 17 at the time. <laughs> um, so I've been doing this my whole career, you know, this is 20 years later, I'm 39 now, 20 years later, and I'm still doing this with every company I'm involved in because it's just the fastest way to validate that your, your idea, because and, and here's a big thing is people disconnect the fact that it's not that the customer may not have the problem. It's just, they may not want the solution you're selling. So some people think they're doing customer development or pre-selling by saying, hey, do you have this problem? I'm going to solve it, pay me money. But what's more interesting to me is the, I'm going to solve it this way. Do you want that? Because those two things can definitely get you in trouble. Hmm. And so 
how would you adapt that to B2B SaaS, for example? Like you're talking an example that's more B2C. Like if you're looking at B2B specifically. No, that was B2B. I mean, every, every one of those uh, vacation bed and breakfast, those are all business customers, right? Okay. It's no different. Um, same thing. So, so I coach a ton. I think I've got uh, over 100 coaching clients right now uh, in my SaaS company program, all incredible B2B SaaS founders. And I would say 60, 70% executed the same playbook. Um, and what's cool is they continue to do it for new product iterations, right? So they'll pre-sell new uh, add-ons, modules, et cetera, and then co-create it with the customer. So the way you do that um, is you wanna, you wanna essentially create a one-pager. So you spec out you know, problem solution features. So let's say three core features, product hook, product promise. And then you go and um, talk to your, what I call a perfect fit customer, right? Your ideal customer profile, your target, whatever you want to call them. But essentially, I think this is the right customer for this solution. And you try to get 10 people to buy. Uh, most people um, make the mistake at that stage of changing the specs on the product for every conversation. Okay. So if I'm talking to you, Etienne, and you're like, hey, Dan, I love this, um, you know, but it's missing this feature. If you add it, I'll, I'll buy, I'm in, right? And then all of a sudden now you've got 10 new customers and 10 new features to add and it's essentially professional services. It's not, you know, so what I always tell people is, is pre-sell based on, because here's the deal is, and, and again, I, I've, gone, I've been doing this for so long that I know all the rebuttals. Like people are gonna say, well, my customers are not early adopters, blah, 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 blah. Like you name it, I'll give you the reason why you got to overcome it, but it can be done. I mean, just the idea of an early adopter, right? If you look at, uh, I think it's um, Jeffrey Moore's um, uh, Crossing the Chasm. Yep. I always mix up Jeffrey and Clayton Christian. I think it's Jeffrey Moore. Oh, yeah. Jeffrey so Jeffrey Moore, Moore yeah. wrote, yeah, yeah. So essentially the people that you know are the early adopters, the innovators, they're willing to invest to have competitive advantages before the rest of the market gets something. And those are the people you actually want to find. Those are the ones that you want to figure out um, where they're hiding and, and they're the ones that are going to be your early adopters and help you co-create the product. And I, I mean, even one of my mentors, and I, again, I can walk you through dozens of examples, but one of my mentors, uh, Marcel Lebrun, another great Canadian, essentially uh, from New Brunswick, built a company called Radiant 6. Okay. And they did the exact same thing with Radiant 6 for Fortune really 2,000 customers, right? Where they pre-sold, they co-created, and they built out the product from that point of view. Hmm. So... I interviewed Alan Clement a couple of weeks back, the author of uh, When Kale and Coffee Compete. And there's a great story in that book on how your team used the Jobs to Be Done framework at Clarity. So what's, what's the role of GTBD and how do you use it today? Yeah, I mean, to me, it's, it's kind of like, you know, I think it's uh, Bob Moesta, really, who's the pioneer behind it. Um, the idea, I think I actually... First off, I'm going to say, I think jobs to be done is probably the worst named framework ever. <laughs> and I say that with a lot of love and admiration, obviously, because um, it's not sexy, right? Lean startup is sexy. Agile is sexy. Um, jobs to be done is a little flat, right? Yeah, I think uh, if they would have called it. Yeah. So like, I just always thought it, it hasn't got as much prominence as it should because it's so incredibly powerful. And a large part to that is probably some positioning. Um, that being said, the way uh, I think about it, and it's, you know, it's Henry Ford, you know, his whole thing was the job that people wanted was not a faster horse is they wanted to get to point A to point B faster, right? And, and in many ways, this is the way Elon Musk thinks when he talks about first principles, right? When he looks at transportation or rocketry or electric cars, et cetera, he just, he looks at the first principles of physics involved in saying, if this is the, the job to be done, 
then how do we really look at reducing the cost and making it a better product? Um, so for me, when I was looking at clarity, the biggest challenge, like, you know, and I'll be honest, when I started, I was full of, uh, you know, enthusiasm and excitement because I was like, wow, I can't believe nobody had thought of this yet, right? Nobody thought, hey, there's all these experts in the world, there's all these micro celebrities. How do we connect them with the people that want their attention? If they obviously have a followership, if you have people following you on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, et cetera, reading your books, uh, many of them would pay a premium to get on a call to ask you specific questions around their context and, and get some solutions. Uh, so that was the premise for, for clarity. Now, uh, when you dive into, okay, you know, total addressable market, you know, specific, um, what is the job to be done? Here's what I realized. What I remember I came across one of my early, early adopters, a guy named Omar out of Miami. And uh, he spent like $7,000 on clarity in a week. Right. So okay. obviously okay. I was like, okay, I need to figure out what he, <laughs> what does he believe? What does he know that made him do that ROI calculation and him decide to pull the trigger? Like I didn't know him. Like this is, this was kind of the first, like not influenced by Dan Martell. Don't know their, their group of friends. Like, he saw the product, understood it, and went nuts and, and did about, you know, half a dozen, dozen calls. Um, and the way he framed it for me was, hey, man, uh, I used to spend way more money traveling to events, standing in line in a Q&A to ask a question that might get answered that really only got answered high level because it had to be relevant to everybody else. And even if I tried to talk to the speaker after they get off stage, um, it was hit or miss. And now you let me get access to those same quality of speakers today. I don't have to wait. Uh, and for honestly a fraction of the cost that I used to spend going to conferences and events, he goes, I can't believe people don't get that. And that's when I realized that the job to be done, one of the primaries was for a certain type of business owner, entrepreneur to, that are looking to make strategic decisions that have a belief set that have to be true. I think that this is like when we talk about perfect fit customers, I think if you don't take into consideration the corporation or the individual's values, you're missing a huge opportunity because what I realize is, um, you know, entrepreneurs in general, if you grab a hundred of them, it's actually only about 20 to 15% that are growth minded, right? And people are like, well, I don't get it. Every entrepreneur is growth minded. No, there's a lot of people that are freelancers, self, you know, self-employed, et cetera, that are quote unquote entrepreneurs that do not have the same belief, you know, growth abundance mindset. And so if you take about like, that target market and the job to be done. It was really for a growth minded entrepreneur that valued counsel, advice, expertise, that believed that investing in themselves or their team was a good investment. So all of a sudden now that the market size gets a lot smaller, but the beauty is, is understanding that job to be done allowed me to say, okay, well, what's true about that customer, right? So if I take Omar and I zoom back and I go, okay, what's true about Omar? in the context of who he is and his values and his business and et cetera. And we found out some really smart things. One, most Omars use Evernote, right? Which is an obvious thing in hindsight because A, it's an advanced tool back then, right? Most people didn't know about Evernote. B, it showed that you, you, you were somebody who collected information, right? Cause that's the core premise of Evernote to just like capture, take your digital bond and put it in a better format and uh, C that, you, um, you, you believed in kind of investing in yourself and, and like investing in tools, right? So a lot of people don't invest in tools. They don't invest in a day timer. They don't invest in, you know, simple things, right? Software, project management software, workflow. So 
that, that was the big, you know, again, I don't want to waste all, like you get questions, but that was the big thing is just trying to understand at the core of this, when you when and I call them bright spots in your product, in your customer um, usage, there's bright spots, people that are getting a disproportionate amount of value out of your product. You need to, you need to zoom in, interview jobs to be done framework, then extract what's true and then go validate that with your other bright spots to see, is this true there? Can I, can I go and find that on these other companies? And then if those, those things are true, then how do I use that understanding for positioning and marketing? Okay. Okay. So maybe going to come back to this, but like, if we take a step back, so like once the product is out, like, how do you, how do you start learning from your users? Like how how you start learning from the early users? Lots of different ways. So um, it's kind of like right time, right action. So that's why I call everything I do growth stacking because I really believe there's things you do when you're at this stage, it's different at this stage and you kind of stack your growth uh, tactics. But let's say if you're just starting, one of my favorite things is doing um, smile and dial Thursdays. So every Thursday I would pick at least eight clients because not everybody would answer and I would call new customers. And I would go through a series of questions. I wouldn't even tell them it was the founder because I felt like the advice was skewed. So if you're the founder of the product, then people um, don't want to hurt your feelings, don't want to say anything bad. So I would always say, you know, this is uh, John, you know, product manager at Clarity. I noticed you signed up on Monday. Some people would be like, shut up. This is Dan because they knew me. Whatever. <laughs> it's all good. Uh, but the then it was really just, um, trying to find out how they heard of you. Cause like, there's all these things that you need to learn in the early days. It's, it's, you want to figure out kind of like what's, what made them sign up, right? What did they understand about the product? Cause it, I mean, this is the big thing I've learned is, and this is another strategy that I call the product profit. It's a survey format, but one of the questions you ask is how do you explain the product to a friend or colleague? Right. And if you then filter that answer in the survey to the people that would be very, dis- very disappointed. So essentially they can no longer use the product. How disappointed would you be? The very disappointed people, those people have a different description than what you have on your homepage. I, and I see this 80% of the time. When I start working with a client, we send out the survey. I look at the data. I, I zoom in on it. I show them. And then I go, okay, here's your homepage. Here's what they're saying. Do you see a disconnect? So what happens is the, the motivated users figure it out. And those are the ones that are very disappointed and everybody else didn't figure it out because your messaging's off. So that's what I'm always looking for in the early days is understanding, you know, who, who, how did you hear about us? What did they say? How did they explain our product? What made, what did you think you would discover when you signed up? What problem are you looking to solve? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So there's all these like product questions, but I do that every week. You know, at least I want to get on at least three calls in an hour and I usually have a queue of eight. Um, so it means you got to get some signups, but that's the way um, you do it in the early days. So you're trying to get at the value proposition, like the messaging itself first and then uh, how that ties to the product or? All of the above. I got mean, it. because you have time, you can get through all of that. I think in the early days, usually your product's pretty straightforward. You know, it's, it's almost like a feature. It doesn't do a whole lot. Um, first version of clarity pretty much was, you know, like you call, that was it. Like there was no Q and a, there was no, there was literally, it was like a handful of experts. There was no marketplace. You know, you couldn't search. It was like, here's some experts on these topics, you know, call them. Um, so yeah, so it's, it's, it's all the above. It's figuring out, um, 
it's, it's all, the way I think about it is uh, there's a mental movie that customers create in their mind and we want to create that mental movie to tell a story that we want that, that is deliberate, that we believe is the best story for them to propagate in the market, right? Like that's, that's the way I think marketing's, marketing's job is to craft the mental movie around the problem you solve and how you solve it, who you solve it for, and what makes it unique and interesting and, and some of the results you've gotten for other clients. And if you do that um, in a way that uses their words, right? So this is the other thing, just from a copy point of view, um, you know, some founders will call them, I mean, think about different industries have different words for customer, right? Gyms call them members, doctors call them patients, lawyers call them clients, like every, like, so just little nuances like that make such a big difference when you're trying to position the product. So um, trying to figure out the, the, the way people describe the product, figure out what problem they're trying to solve, the, you know, understanding how they wish it would have been solved. So if there's a disconnect between what they expected and what you did, which, you know, goes back to the Kano model, um, I think is, it's worth understanding that gap. But to me, it's, it's refining the mental movie and knowing that everything from who first introduces them to the solution, to the homepage, to the sign up flow, to the first time user experience, to your retention, re-engagement emails, et cetera, et cetera, are all going to hopefully be uh, a thoughtful, consistent, clear, you know, mental movie of the problem you're solving. And I think if you look at the best products in the world, that's what they either did consciously or unconsciously. Hmm. So, okay. So in one of your talks, you're mentioning uh, that you created the customer advisory board for Clarity. Uh, mm -hmm. And I'll really help with validation features and all that stuff. So how would you recommend founders think about that specifically and maybe set it up if that, that's, that's still something you advise companies to Yeah, do? so I call it the CAB customer advisory board or internally at Clarity, we called it the A-team. You know, it was essentially our advisory board or A-team. Um, I think that depending on the product and the engagement of your A-team, you might, you know, you might want a dozen people to 25 people. I think at the height we had probably 30 uh, because I just keep adding people. So the, the big mistake people make is letting customers opt in, right? Which I call the vocal minority. I think a lot of times there's very enthusiastic. I mean, this is the, this is probably the saddest part about building a company is when somebody's like, Oh my God, I love you. This is so amazing. What a great product. Oh yeah. I love it. I love it. It's so great. You're the guy. That, oh, that's amazing. And then you go look at their account and they haven't, done anything. They've never used it. They signed up once six months ago, you know, which is not horrible because they're out there being an advocate and an ambassador, but you know, they really, if you actually got their feedback, because a lot of these vocal minorities will tell you stuff like, you know what you're missing is you got to add a, you got to add a bookmarklet or you got to add a mobile app or you got to add integration with this tool and they're actually not users. So that's the big thing for me is step one, you decide what, who you think would be a great uh, person to add to the uh, the customer advisory board. And then the way you engage them to me, I think is, uh, and even though, so clickable prototypes is a kind of a concept that I'm a big fan of both in pre-selling and in product development. So a lot of people do the clickable prototypes to validate their idea, to get pre-orders, et cetera. And then they stop doing it when it comes to product development, which I, I think is the hugest opportunity, right? To, I remember one time we were working on a browser extension for clarity 
and I was showing it. I, I built the clickable prototype, which is super simple. Like you can use Balsamic, you can use UX Pin. You know, if you want to get fancy, you can go to Envision app. We use Keynote. We literally built a design template style guide in Keynote with all the widgets and all the tools and the interfaces for our product. Our designer built it. And then anybody on the team could literally just take the templates, retweak things, and easily create a new flow. So I was working on the uh, browser extension uh, for Chrome and I showed it to some customers and they, sh they just said simple things like that, my, that doesn't make sense. The language you used on that page, the way you asked me to add it to my, it just doesn't make sense. Or when you did this, I expected to see that and you're showing me these little blue dots, but that doesn't tell me that I can call the expert. You should change it to this. So like being able to use your, your customer advisory board for product design pre-building, I think is so incredibly invaluable because they'll, they'll allow you to come out of the gate with a new feature module that's way more polished and on point than if you just, you know, build it and deploy it. So that's how I use them. Um, and it was really just for, for focus groups as well. So like, uh, I'm a big fan of actually going into a customer's world and watching the way they work. Right. So with clarity, for example, one of the big features that we never got to build that we were going to release was integration into calendars. So one thing that we believed is as the jobs to be done was expert advice for your team. And most of those conversations happen in a, a meeting with two plus people around things that they've never done before. Like we're going to work on our SEO or marketing, or, you know, I'm thinking of bringing on a VP of sales or whatever it is. Right. And they, they have these calendar invites and I wanted to make it seamless so that it would prompt you and say, do you want an expert for this call? Right. And then give you three options and you could sure. say, yep. And then it would just like, it's a pretty straightforward. So, um, uh, where was I going with that? Oh, showing, showing the customers how that would work and, and, and get and getting their feedback around how they think of advice today and what advice that they would feel comfortable allowing their team to pull from. Cause that's when it got really interesting when it moved away from just being the entrepreneur and then it being the team that had a budget essentially for expert advice and, and really trying to understand the, um, the team's approach or mentality to it because some team members felt, uh, um, uh, attacked or they were worried that they would look like they didn't know what they were talking about if they brought in an expert, right? Cause they were paid 125 grand a year to manage marketing. And all of a sudden now they're spending 500 bucks an hour to bring in an expert. You know, they were worried that if they did that, the, their boss, the CEO, the founder would think, well, they don't know what they're doing. Right. So, so just even understand that nuance. Uh, I don't think I would have came to on my own because our culture was totally different. I gave everybody on the team a $500 budget to do clarity calls mm -hmm. individually. Every person on the team should and could make calls to help their betterment. So that's the way I think of using a great uh, a customer advisory board to essentially validate early when there's not a lot of invested cost on ideas to, to, to quick, cause it's all about speed, right? If I have to yeah. like, you know, go and create a survey structure and find people to take it, et cetera, versus if I already got this group ready to go. And then we would even do like pre-releases, made them feel special, um, maybe mention them in the release if they helped kind of guide the shape, the feature, et cetera. So how do the, the techniques you use and the insights that you look for evolve as the business grows? Like now you're talking about the customer advisory board, you're talking before, uh, you're doing all these, these, uh, these interviews. Like does yeah. that remain or do you change the way you learn and the way no. you adapt? 
it, it moves. What happens if you think about it, it's qualitative versus quantitative, right? So you got these two ends of the spectrum. And I think in the early days, let's call it uh, zero to a hundred million or hundred million, zero to a million in ARR, annual recurring revenue, 83K a month in revenue uh, for B2B SaaS. Uh, a lot of that is going to be qualitative, working with the customers, talking to the customers, watching them work, right? Um, one question I love to ask uh, customers is, what do you do three minutes before or three minutes after you use our product, right? To really get an understanding of what I call share of wallet. How do I get more of the full, full problem space that they're looking to solve in our solution, et cetera? And uh, that is very qualitative in the early days, right? And then um, on later on, million plus, two, three, four million. Now it's now it's more data, analytics, surveys, et cetera, because you have a bigger pool of customers. So if you could in the early days, it'd be great to do that stuff, but you just don't. Um, so it, it moves to more split testing, um, uh, NPS scores, um, you know, just engagement data, right? So like when we work on product features, uh, I use the rice uh, scoring concept, which is reach impact, confidence and ease and being able to then like get the data of like, okay, we have 500 and then segmenting out by like, uh, um, by plan. So the other thing is a lot of people, they look at retention as like this global number, but to me, it's like, you got to separate the small versus the medium versus the large, uh, churn numbers. Cause they're different customers they're different appropriate experiences or different expected outcomes. And, um, and then once you've got that, then you can use the surveys to dive in and look at things like pricing would be like willingness to pay. Right. So I just feel like that's the way to think about it is that early days. It should be very like, to me, the founder should be in the support tickets. Like that's, there's some gold in there. I used to, I did support for two years at clarity the first two years. And, um, again, under a pseudonym name, because obviously if you're the founder, it sounds, it sounds romantic and people are like, Oh, I'm going to do it as a founder. But the truth is, is that it, it, it clouds and it muddies up the feedback. And you know what I mean? People, if it's Jason at 37 signals, my email to him is going to be different than Sarah. Yeah. You know, customer support specialist. Yeah. So. Huh. And today, like, how do you recommend that founders prioritize features or functionality groups by the value or by, by what, what brings most value to the, uh, the user base? Um, well, that's using the rice score. Uh, well, so there's like a few things, right? Cause it's one part of it is, you know, it, it's, I, I remember Sean Ellis who created the term growth hacker. He said, if all we did was split test everything, we'd, we'd end up at porn, you know? <laughs> and I, and I, I've never forgot that because it's just a simple idea of like, we can't always look to just optimize the local maxima problem, right? Yeah. So, you know, sometimes the big opportunity requires us to go down the valley and rebuild to get to this next level peak in, in opportunity. So I think it's, it's, yes, it's using the right score, right? Reach, impact, confidence. And that's for, I think, um, for existing customer bases, but you should also still have a product vision and my rule and the, and the underlying question I'm asking myself and the team always is, um, how do we create more value for our customer than anybody else in the world? And if we are always trying to answer that question from a product experience to a customer experience to a marketing experience, I think that it's a good true North Star. And 
that I think can't be forgotten in light of like, we can make the product better. That's great. But at a certain point, we need to bring innovation to this market. We need to be thought leaders. We need to, we need to be pushing the innovation. If all we do, like if, if Slack stopped that just chat and didn't add other features, if Dropbox just stopped that file storage, et cetera, you know, as they get more competitors out there, then those people are going to be the innovators. So it's, it's kind of like a two headed thing where you need to make sure the product keeps getting better for your install base. But then you also need to be looking at where's this market going, what's true in the culture, what's changing, you know, and I, I look at Snapchat as just an incredibly innovative company, right? I mean, if you're getting, if you, if everything you build is being ripped off by Facebook, you know, or Instagram, like you're doing some, you're doing some really smart things. And, um, yeah, so I think that's the way I, I think about kind of prioritization is yes, using improvements, but also we need to have an eye on the vision. Okay. Okay. And are there like, in your opinion, like some customer research techniques that you think more business should be using, like those that are maybe neglected by SaaS founders? Well, I mean, I don't think SaaS founders are doing jobs to be done. So that's okay. a big one. Um, the Kano model, I thought was just a fascinating way to think about, um, you know, the, uh, the, the customer needs, right? So, and this came from my buddy Merv, he worked in a manufacturing business for years. It's, it's, it's kind of more old school, but the idea that there's kind of three things that we need to focus on is, is the, the three E's of the Kano models is expected. So what are the things the customer expected? What are the things that they've expressed? So this might be in your support tickets, in your interviews, in your conversations, um, or even in uh, public chat. So like, or public support groups. So one of my favorite things to do is go read the Q&A on my competitor's public Q&A chat sites, if they exist, which for the most part, they kind of do, or even community forums, right? To really understand, you know, where the gaps are in the market. And then three is excite, right? Which is back to that question, how do we create a product that adds more value to our customers, anybody else in the world? Because in, in answering that, I think we're going to find those opportunities to excite the customer. Mm -hmm. And, and, and that's why like, you know, creating those, 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 uh, surprise and delight moments, I think are what separates the brands like a MailChimp to, you know, uh, fresh books, you know, sending birthday cakes, like just these, these simple things that are just so powerful when it comes to retention, loyalty, and, and word of mouth marketing. And, and that, that whole VWAM is what I call the, the, the virtual word of mouth marketing. Like it's more prevalent than ever. I mean, especially with like sites like Captera and others, like your ability to get new customers from a positive customer experience is exponential and it continues to get better, right? Review sites, um, distribution channels, your mobile reviews, uh, your Google reviews, um, glass door for your employee reviews. I mean, it's pretty, it's pretty neat that if you can do things that are just better than everybody else and get recognized for that, it has such an exponential impact to your growth. Hmm. Maybe the reverse, like, like, are there some techniques that you think less businesses should be using? Like some that are overrated that people use or things that people do that are not worth it or not as much? Um, my biggest pet peeve is people hiding behind their data. Okay. So that's like, like my biggest pet peeve. Yeah. So the way I think on. about it is, um, yeah, super early on for sure they're doing it. And even later on, I mean, here's the way I think about it. If I have a retail store and I own that retail store and I hide in the back, you know, in the closet, you know, in, and around me is like these closed circuit televisions and I'm watching our customers come through the front door and they're interacting with staff and I'm just like spying on them. Essentially, I'm just watching, 
you know, as they come in and the customer says, you know, do you need any help with anything? And they're like, no, I'm fine. They're like, okay. Or, you know, like and you just spy on them and then they leave without buying. Right. And, and a lot of these tech founders, they just sit in this friggin' room and watch these TVs and see things happening and never once like, dude, if I owned the retail store that sold jeans and people walked in and left without buying, and like three or four people did that in a row, I would run out after them and apologize <laughs> for my, for, for, for friggin' being out of breath and saying, Hey, I just got to ask you, you came into the store. So you were looking for something or you were interested in something. What, what, like what was missing or what were you expecting back to the Kano model, right? Expected. Um, because if I don't solve that, that day, like it doesn't get better day two, three, four. So I just think a lot of founders, um, get really giddy on their profit well or their bear metrics or their chart moguls or their, you know, whatever segment data. And they don't actually stop and say, those are people behind those emails or data points. And if I, if I see a behavior, I should engage. So like when we were building, we built the product called timely and our activation was like 10%. It was super low from what we expected because it was a simple tool to let you auto schedule your tweets so that they would be published in the best time, um, to amplify your base on your audience, right? So we look at the data and we'd say, you don't have to tell us when to schedule it. We'll schedule it for you. Just queue them up. And people weren't using it. And I didn't sit there and try to fix it and try to guess. I picked up the phone and email. I emailed them and said, hey, John, no sign up for Timely. Uh, you got five minutes or you got three minutes. Here's my cell. Text me. Like, I just want to get on a call. And the craziest thing happened. They all kept saying, this is amazing. I love the idea. I signed up. But um, I've queued it up. I'm going to look at it next week or I'll look at it tonight. Or I'll right. look. So they didn't take the action at the beginning. And then I realized that the big reason was, is they had nothing to tweet. So what I changed is essentially I, I gave them a prompt. I thought, what's the most universal types of tweets that I could present for them to add so that they, if they don't publish a tweet through timely, they're never going to come back because we never show them the core value. We never get them that aha moment. And we showed them quotes, you know, motivational quotes. It wasn't for everybody, but they were pretty generic, pretty straightforward that they thought, oh, okay, I could share this. And then they would just add it to the queue and it would tweet, but then they would get the email and it'd say, oh, this quote. And the cool thing is quotes get a lot more engaged than most people's, you know, personal yeah, life yeah. tweets or content share. So it was just a way for us to say like, oh shit, this tweet got five retweets. My tweets never get retweets, you know? And then they're like, I got to go use Timely. So <laughs> it's those little things that if you don't talk to the customer, you know, you might just look at the data and think there's something wrong with the product. And there is, but the real insights is going to be from the conversation. So I just, I'm just not a fan of hiding behind the data. And that's the thing I think people need to stop doing. But why do you feel like founders are, like some of them are afraid to do that? Like, is it fear? Is it, is it uh, like, what do you feel is the, the reason? Yeah, I think it's I think it's fear to have somebody criticize their product. Okay. I get it. I'm the same way, man. I don't want to hear I already know it's broken with the product. I already know that it's not great. You know, I'm having a hard time getting out of bed just to keep building and grinding because I'm not getting paid and it's, you know, like the revenue didn't happen the way. Like I get it. It's hard. It's like, you know, it's like lining up to get kicked in the stomach, you know, but if you know that the opportunities on the other side of that activity, you just, you gotta, you gotta have the faith and push forward. Hmm. Maybe a last question. So like if we try to put everything back together, like, so I'm a subscriber of your newsletter there's a lot of great content there, but also I've noticed there's a lot of experiments. Uh, how do you go about validating and iterating the SAS Academy? Like your, your current business, like how do you go about uh, experimenting, testing, growing? 
I pretty much everything I've just told you I do for my coaching business. Okay. So I have a customer advisory board. I measure everything. Um, I, um, I'm, I'm interviewing the customers. We get surveys, we get MPS scores, we get feedback. Every event we do, we do a, a post-event survey at the event so that there's you know 100% completion. Um, my customer success person is continuously monitoring and getting feedback. We have a process for, for doing that. So uh, my marketing team, same thing. They're continuously split testing. We're coming up with ideas every quarter to kind of say, hey, let's try this positioning. Let's try this, um, this messaging. Let's try this email format. Um, so I, I don't know, like to me, I, what I, I've always just loved re So, so with SAS Academy, you know, essentially it's not a subscription, there's a commitment. So it's a three-year program with a one-year commitment. Um, but I, I let people, you know, pay it off every month. And I just love that. I've always loved business models. And that's why I fell in love with software that were just predictable. Right. And because they're predictable every month or every month, they're predictable in the sense that they pay every month. Um, and because of that, every month I need to earn that investment, right? Cause I think every time I pay $89 for Trello or $250 for my email marketing tool or, you know, a hundred bucks a month for Slack or whatever it is, I'm asking myself, did I get that kind of value out of the product? And I just love that honesty and purity of that exchange. And I think that, you know, sometimes enterprise products don't get that. They yeah. don't get that, that, that alignment. And I just think it's just such a beautiful thing that I've will always, I can't think of a business that I'll ever get involved in that doesn't have a subscription model. Be even like some of my clients, they pre-sell two year contracts, which is a great way to bootstrap up front. It's very dangerous in the future. So, so again, right time, right action in the early days, great way for cash flow. You know, if you're three or four years in, two to three million in AR, it's actually really bad for you because you're you're not getting the data set that you're you should be getting. You're not um, you're not monetizing as properly too. Because if you've got good retention, why would you give a discount? Just you know. So there's all these things that to me, I just love the the purity of it. And 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 SaaS Academy, I treat it like a software business, and I do all of the stuff we just talked about with my clients because I also don't want to be a hypocrite. I think a lot of coaches out there are. That's just a fact. You know, I mean, just, I'm just going to say this, Etienne. Most business coaches never ask their customers for their financial numbers. Hmm. I posted that one day. I asked, does your business coach ask you for your P&L? Like your financial numbers, do they ask on a monthly basis, do, does your business coach and review it with you to help you understand it? Everybody, no, 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 yes. No, 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 like 90% was no. I don't know, man, if you're a business coach and you don't truly understand the person's like, to me, the financial numbers is the, the, the scorecard. It's the That's scoreboard. The it, yeah, yeah. It's, it's like all this other stuff that, you know, the playing entrepreneur and, and doing fun things and feeling motivated, and inspired, all this stuff is great. But if it doesn't translate into increased gross margin and, you know, retention and all these other metrics that are going to show up in the P and L, um, and they don't matter. So, I mean, I just, I just have a really hard time when, when I see, like I, I do what I teach and that's just a personal thing from an integrity point of view. I think it's really weird. You know, like, it's like I say, you shouldn't trust a fat life coach and I'm, I'm cool <laughs> saying that, you know, it frustrates a lot of people, but it's like, dude, if you can't get your shit together, like go start there. Like, that's just my thing is start with your own stuff. And then if you feel compelled, like I've done to share with others, then, then that's cool. Right. But um, 
again, that's, you know, I also believe some people are researcher experts and they, you know, blah, 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 blah. I get it. There's always exceptions, but the norm for the most part, that's, that's how I think about it. Thanks for taking the time, Dan. That's really appreciated. Uh, where can people go to learn more about your work? Yeah. So if people have retention issues, because most people do just go to danmartel.com forward slash churn buster. And I'll yep. share with you guys my churn buster cheat sheet. It's nine different strategies to increase your retention and really monitor your customers. Um, and then on my YouTube channel, I have, I publish every Monday for the last three and a half years. Um, so I've got hundreds of videos there. And if you want to see the behind the scenes, like these folks here on Instagram, um, cause I've been live streaming, uh, just follow me on Instagram. It's kind of where I share my journey, the deals I work on, my client stories, my team, my family stuff. It's kind of like the behind the scenes. Perfect. So we'll share your link as well. Thanks for taking the time. That's really, really appreciated. Tian, thanks so much, man. Thank you. Bye.